earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Today is part four in our series, The Acts of the Resurrection Life. And if you've missed any parts in this series, the podcasts are freely accessible at faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. Well, remember now, we're taking a thematic journey through the book of Acts, and so we're tracking the lives of the apostles and followers of Jesus, observing them as they manifest resurrection power. And please also keep in mind as we go that the book of Acts is an alive book. The Holy Spirit is alive and well, and living or acting powerfully in and through the lives of these disciples of Jesus. We also said, friends, that the book of Acts has no expiration date stamped on it, and the Holy Spirit has no expiration date stamped on him either. Well, friends, today's session is called The Magnificent Seven, and we'll look at Acts chapter 6. And I'd like to begin today's session with a French fable retold by the late Cavett Robert, founder of the National Speakers Association. This fable recounts a day in the life of the king's best personal servant, who was walking in a dense forest near the palace, when all of a sudden he stumbled and fell down a steep hill. When he came to, he noticed by his feet the proverbial Aladdin's lamp, which he rubbed, and voila, out came a genie. The genie said, "'Your finding this lamp was no accident. You've worked hard all your life.' So you're entitled to one wish, but make it carefully, because you can have only one. The servant responded, All my life I've been in positions requiring that I serve others. In fact, I'm known as the servant of the kingdom. In the future, I want people to wait on me and serve me. Yes, that's it. For once in my life, I want the tables turned. I want servants to do things for me for a change. Sure enough, when he returned to the palace, the door was opened for him. His food was cooked. His meals were served to him. His dishes were washed. His clothes cared for by others. He wasn't even allowed to perform his usual duties. Everything was done for him. For the first month, the newness of this experience amused him. The second month, it became irritating. And by the third month, it just became unbearable. So he ran out to the forest and searched frantically to find that Aladdin's lamp and summoned the genie again. This time, he told the genie, I've discovered that having people wait on me isn't as pleasant as I thought. I wish to return to my original station in life and once again be the servant of the kingdom. 
but unfortunately the genie replied, I'm sorry, I can't help you. I had the power to grant only one wish. Well, this ex-servant's frustration level rose, and he continued, but, but, but you don't understand. I want to serve people. I found it far more rewarding to do things for others than to have things done for me. But the genie folded his arms and shook his head. So the man begged, but you've got to help me. I'd rather be in hell than not be able to serve others. The genie replied sorrowfully but insightfully, Where do you think you've been these last three months? Missionary and co-founder of Wycliffe Bible Translators, L. L. Legsters, once commented, Victory in service... And I don't think he would mind if I substituted a word I believe is interchangeable with victory. Power in service is to be expected from supernaturally born men and women who are supernaturally delivered, supernaturally sustained, and supernaturally directed. We are thus supernaturally created for a supernatural work, which is supernaturally prepared and is to be supernaturally performed." Hmm, that tells it like it is, doesn't it, friends? Or at least it tells it like it should be understood, right? I don't know about you, but I imagine you've discovered the same thing I've discovered. I've discovered over and over that anything I do for the kingdom of God is a supernatural work, and I must do that work with supernatural help, supernatural power, if you will. Have you discovered that? And have you experienced the difference between attempting ministry in your own strength, your own power, and undertaking ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit? I have. Well, friends, in our selective journey through Acts, today we're going to take a trip through Acts chapter 6, which describes undertaking a particular ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. But before we do that, it's important we remember what characterized this new emerging community of believers we refer to as the church. Back in chapter 2, we learn that these believers had everything in common, and everything meant they sold their possessions and goods and gave to anyone in need. This is reiterated in chapter 4, where we again learn that all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions were his own, but they shared everything they had. There was no needy person among them. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. So let's read Acts 6, 1 through 6. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. 
This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them. Friends, I want us to notice three words or phrases in this portion. Distribution, verse 1. Wait on tables, verse 2. And ministry, verse 4. Our English translation somewhat conceal the underlying words here, which, interestingly, are all three rooted in the same Greek word, diakonia. Can you guess what English word comes from this word? If you guessed deacon, you're correct. Personally, I think it's a bit premature at this early stage of the developing church to say that these seven men were the first deacons, but it appears that later on a similar ministry was made an official category in the church communities per Philippians 1 and 1 Timothy 3. Notice the qualifications of the people chosen to oversee this food distribution to widows. In verse 3, the apostles charged the group to select men who were full of the spirit and wisdom. And it was said of Stephen and the others that they also were full of faith. And in verse 8, Stephen was said to be full of grace and power, and that he performed great wonders and signs among the people. These are surely some high standards and characteristics for these guys whose primary ministry was to superintend the distribution of food to widows, right? Well, I think it would be helpful to unpack this word diakonia. I don't want us to just gloss over reading these verses in chapter 6 and miss a crucial meaning. Friends, a few sessions ago I mentioned that as we trace the word power through the book of Acts, we must always keep in mind... That power is never divorced from compassion, and compassion is never divorced from love. In fact, true power in the church must be exercised with both compassion and love. Power devoid of compassion and love wreaks havoc in the church. Without compassion and love, power becomes corrupt. Remember the cliché I shared? Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Friends, think of people you know who have exercised power without compassion or love. It's biblically wrong. In the late 1900s, Justin Rowe Nixon said, The basic difference between physical and spiritual power is that people use physical power, but spiritual power uses people. Here's an equally apropos statement made by Chuck Colson. The lore of power can separate the most resolute of Christians from the true nature of Christian leadership, which is service to others. It's difficult to stand on a pedestal and wash the feet of those below. Jesus himself becomes the epitome of one who manifested the character qualities of diakonia. In Luke twenty-two twenty-five through 27 Jesus replies to his disputing disciples on which of them was considered the greatest by telling them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority or power over them. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves 
There's diakonia. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. In Matthew's account, Jesus tags on these words. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, there's diakonia, and give his life as a ransom for many. And friends, these English words affiliated with diakonia, distribute, wait on tables, ministry, and serve, all carry with them involvement characterized by compassionate love towards others, and in particular, the needy within the Christian community. Here's where we find the origins of voluntary servanthood, with the intention of benefiting others. These are truly acts of the resurrection life, and these acts of service are viewed with reverence in the first century Christian communities. Now, friends, I'd like to just elaborate on that phrase used in the NIV, wait on tables. This might be misleading and tempt us to imagine a restaurant setting, like a modern-day server in a restaurant taking orders. But actually, what's being pictured here is a centralized distribution center where the financial matters of the church community were administered. In the first century culture, to wait on tables or serve tables meant presiding at the bench or counter where money was distributed. You see, friends, an important aspect of early church life was providing food for the needy, likely purchased with the money from their possessions that were sold and given to the apostles to distribute, as we saw in chapters 2 and 4. But as the early church communities grew numerically, the apostles could not adequately handle the responsibility of caring for the needy and preaching the word at the same time. So an ad hoc committee was established to make sure these needs were being met. Isn't it interesting, friends, that during the formation of this committee and execution of their duties, opposition arose? In verses 9 through 14, Jewish members of the synagogue began arguing with Stephen. But as one verse says, they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him. This was not the end either. These Jews went so far as to stir up the people and the religious leaders against Stephen. This snowballed and became the grounds for the Jewish religious leaders to finally stone Stephen and make him the first Christian martyr. Remember now, I shared that as we trace the word power through Acts, we also witness power struggles as well. Imagine as the Christian sect grew, the Jewish religious authorities are watching their power being undermined. What incited this particular opposition was another group of Greek-speaking Jews known as freedmen, taken from a word that ties back to a Latin term denoting Jews freed from slavery, like from Rome, who migrated back to Jerusalem. Evidently, they banded together and formed their own synagogue so they could worship and praise God in Greek. All this opposition springs from the same basic fear— fear of losing the influence and authority or power of the temple and the law of Moses, 
the two sacred cows of the Jews. By the time Jesus shows up in the first century Greco-Roman world, the Jewish religious leaders had turned the temple and the law of Moses into avenues whereby they became the religious power brokers of national Israel. The temple became the sole localized expression of the manifest presence of God. But God himself never intended to limit his presence to one location, let alone one building. Friends, part of the reason Stephen recounted a selective history of Israel was to show that God dwelt in many locations over the course of their history. The temple in Jerusalem was never intended to be the final resting place of God's presence. Rather, it was going to be the temple of the bodies of those who personally received Jesus as Messiah. Stephen reminded everyone that even Moses, who represented the law, said that God would raise up a prophet like himself, pointing to the Messiah, who would be the fulfillment of the law of Moses. Friends, I encourage you to read the full speech of Stephen in chapter 7 that ends with him being stoned by the Jewish religious leaders and their supporters. His speech is his way of testifying to the Jewish religious leaders that they have rejected and even killed many of the prophets God sent them, and now they're betraying and murdering him, a reference to their Messiah, God sent in the person of Jesus. So this infuriated these Jewish leaders. But in the midst of this melee, listen to what is said about Stephen in verses 55 and 56. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, in other words, full of power, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The text goes on to say that while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he died. So friends, in today's portion of scripture, Acts chapter 6, and the conclusion of chapter 7, we see the Holy Spirit's power manifested in three ways. First, power for serving others. Second, power for speaking or witnessing. And don't just read chapter 7 as Stephen merely recounting Israel's history, or you'll miss the point. His selective use of history is intended to be his witness to and against the Jewish religious leaders. And third, power for sacrificing oneself. I find it interesting that the word Jesus chose to use in Acts 1.8 when he said, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Witness comes from the word from where we get our English word martyr. So in essence, Stephen literally became the first witness, the first martyr. And isn't it also interesting that the power of the Holy Spirit enabled Stephen to emulate Jesus? Note these similarities. In Acts 7.59, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. In Luke 23.46, Jesus cries out on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In Acts 7.60, Stephen cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. In Luke 23:34, Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. 
Please allow me to reinforce a truth I quoted earlier. Power in service is to be expected from supernaturally born men and women who are supernaturally delivered, supernaturally sustained, and supernaturally directed. We are thus supernaturally created for a supernatural work which is supernaturally prepared and is to be supernaturally performed. So, friends, as much as we might not like to hear this, there isn't one thing in the kingdom that we're supposed to attempt without the supernatural power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit. To something that appears as lowly as waiting on tables, to something that appears to be grand as becoming a martyr for our faith, everything is to be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, when we give first priority to the Holy Spirit and His power, there will be room for plenty of service to be performed in our local churches. And a Spirit-filled church will be a serving church, a church body that is eager to serve others, both within their own walls and outside their walls into the community at large. Additionally, the Spirit-filled and empowered church body will recognize that the spiritual and temporal cannot be separated. In fact, the spiritual life often manifests itself in the meeting of the temporal needs of people. Friends, Acts chapter 6 introduces us to the Magnificent Seven, who had the job the ministry of overseeing the temporal needs of the first century widows and ensuring they received daily food and provisions. And don't forget the caliber of these seven individuals. They were people of good repute, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. They sure seemed to recognize that they were supernaturally created for a supernatural work which was supernaturally prepared and is to be supernaturally performed. Now, I wonder, friends, if after today's lesson, we too will realize that power in service is to be expected from supernaturally born men and women who are supernaturally delivered, supernaturally sustained, and supernaturally directed, and that will understand that this is true because we are supernaturally created for a supernatural work, which is supernaturally prepared and is to be supernaturally performed. Friends, it's my hope that just like Acts chapter 6 outlines the Magnificent Seven were full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and Acts chapter 7 demonstrates that Stephen was a man full of God's grace and power, and that his opposers could not stand up against the wisdom the Holy Spirit gave him. So too we all will appropriate this power unto ourselves and demonstrate our humble service to those around us, whatever their needs, so that our light will shine before others and they'll see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Friends, as I close out our lesson today, I'd like to share some brief quotes that speak to the heart of today's program. Chuck Swindoll once said, In God's family, there's to be one great body of people, servants. In fact, that's the way to the top in his kingdom. Oswald Chambers said, If you wish to be a leader, you'll be frustrated, for very few people wish to be led. If you aim to be a servant, you'll never be frustrated. 
Ignatius of Loyola said, Teach us, good Lord, to serve you as you deserve, to give and not count the cost, to fight and not heed the wounds, to toil and not seek for rest, to labor and not ask for any reward save that of knowing that we do your will. And finally, an anonymous quote, God did not save you to be a sensation. He saved you to be a servant. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, I can see that we're at the end of today's program. Our broadcast will close with an email where you may write me. I'd love to hear your feedback on these teachings and what this program means or has meant to you. Recently, a listener wrote in regarding part two in this series. Another great message. How brave were those early church leaders. We can and do learn much from them and their bravery. Blessings and thanks. Well, thank you for those encouraging words. And remember, friends, all podcasts of A Word from the Word are freely accessible at faithtalk1360.com. That's faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. And if a word from the word is blessing you, please join the support team. Just ask me for the details. It's people like you that keep this listener-supported program on the air. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.